MSW Media. Prevail. This is the new program for politics. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organizado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brotbu za demokratiju. I ahora, a tebe. Et maintenant, con ustedes, su anfitrión, Gregorio. Gregorio. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. Please join me in thanking our new sponsor, America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. We've got a great show from the Center for European Policy Analysis. Alina Baketova is here. She's an in-residence fellow with the Democracy Fellowship Program there. And she researches and writes about um, the occupied territories of Ukraine. And she started her career in journalism in Crimea, which is where she's from. That's really why I wanted to have her on the show, because I'm curious about Crimea. You know, I get curious about places and Crimea is such a inflection point in the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. It's the first territory of Ukraine that Putin and Russia uh, took over in 2014, right? They did a sham referendum. They kind of seized it, basically. They occupied it and they occupy it to this day. So it's important. And it's always been kind of a crossroads, a place of great beauty, natural beauty. And I wanted to learn more about it because my thinking is that Most Americans probably don't know where it is or what it is or what the history is, probably couldn't find it on a map. If you look on a map, you find the Black Sea and it's the peninsula that's kind of shaped like a hand jutting out from Ukraine into the Black Sea. That's Crimea. And I feel like if we could understand what's happening there, we could understand maybe a little bit more insight into what Putin is up to, what Russia's all about here and uh, kind of crack the code a little bit. So very grateful to Alina uh, for coming on the show and teaching me about Crimea, recounting her experiences covering the war and her own personal experiences, um, you know, with Russia's incursion into Ukraine. Very, very happy to bring you that. We'll have that for you in a minute. I don't really have much up top. I will say, you know, there's things going on in the news now where it's like, this pre-trial stuff with the Trump thing, it's like Cheese Bro is arguing and Sidney Powell is arguing that they want to sever, sever the case and the this and the that. And this lawyer says this and this lawyer says that. Look, I'm not going to lie. I, I'm i not that interested in legal minutia. You know, I for about 20 minutes, I thought to myself when I was in college, maybe I, maybe I should go to law school. You know, maybe that's a good thing for me to do. And uh, that lasted as long as I realized what law school involved and what lawyers actually do. And I realized this is not for me at all. So, um, yeah, I feel like this feels like homework to me, like the, these this preliminary trial stuff and, and all of that. And I know that, you know, I, I'm obviously I'm interested in it as a, uh, a person watching the news and a person trying to be up on all the things that are happening. But uh, to me, it's like watching soccer. You know, I just I just get bored. So, uh, you know, what I like, what I like with all the justice stuff, what I really enjoy is when the sentencing happens. I like the guilty verdicts 
And then I like the sentencing. I like to watch Proud Boys cry on the stand like little babies. Uh, and I know it's performative. Everybody, somebody was making this case uh, on Twitter, and I apologize, I, I can't remember who it was, that this is like the Kavanaugh technique now. You go in there and you just cry. And uh, you try to sell the cry, you know. Um, it's like the Elvis Costello song, I'll cry till you suspect my tears. So maybe these guys are just crying and it's all performative. Maybe there's a little bit of of reality in the crying. I don't care. I like the fact that they're crying. I like watching these supposedly tough guys just break down in the most uh, shamefully humiliating way possible. And I enjoy when they get, uh, you know, uh, sentences that are there for a really, really long time. So, you know, Enrico Tario, 22 years. That feels like a lot to me. 22 years is a long time. I wouldn't want to go to jail for 22 years. I wouldn't want to go to jail for 22 days. Years? That's, you know, that's, that's something. So, um, you know, kudos to the judge for putting these guys away. I know people wanted longer sentences. We all want longer sentences um, to maximize the amount of time that these guys are behind bars. But, you know, 22 years is, uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. So, again... Not much interested for me in like cheese bros, weird machinations of this and that. Very, very interested in the long sentences given to traitors. Really enjoyed that. Um, these guys are all going to be in prison for a really long time. Yeah, it's good stuff. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying the W. I'm taking the win. That's what I'm doing with this stuff. So uh, it's nice to see justice happen, isn't it? It's been a long time waiting for this stuff. So it's nice to see justice happening. It's nice to see the bad guys in retreat. And, you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Four indictments, a lot of indictments. It's really a lot of indictments. Also, football's back on. I know a lot of people don't watch football. I know a lot of people who listen to this don't watch sports at all or care about it. It relaxes me. I like that it's on. It makes me nostalgic. Harkens back to memories of my childhood. Um... Pat Summerall and John Madden and watching those games on, on TV when I was a little kid um, makes me happy, you know? And again, we have to take the joy where we can take the joy. So I like this time of year. Kids are back to school. Proud Boy's in jail. It's good. It's good stuff. Um, Halloween's right around the corner. Everything's looking up. I can feel it. Things are looking up. So, all right, enough of my prattle. We'll be right back with Alina McKenna. Did you do legal work for a former chief executive but got stiffed? Is that same former chief exec now refusing to fund your criminal defense? Are your legal bills piling up so high you're forced to pawn your grandmother's old coins just to make ends meet? Hi, I'm Nunzio Siccarelli, president of the bank at Abada Bing. At Abada Bing, we have the best asset recovery team this side of Naples. Whether you need to get your money back from your gambling addict brother-in-law, a shitbag Hollywood producer, or some Palm Beach loser who used to be president, Bada Bing can help. We'll get your cash back before you say Stugats. How are we so effective? Let's just say we make some bones about it. The bank at Bada Bing. Give us a call and give us the fucking money. And now, back to the show. Alina Baketova, welcome to Prevail. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for joining me on this uh, lovely Sunday afternoon. I wanted to have you on because you are a democracy fellow now for the Center for European Policy Analysis, or SIPA. Yep. You're from Crimea, and you're obviously reporting on all this stuff. And I thought, you know, Crimea is such a 
an integral place in terms of what's going on in the world. And I think it's it's almost impossible to understand um, the geopolitical situation in mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine without really focusing on it. And I also think that most people in the United States have no idea where it is, why it's important, what the culture's like, how it's different from other uh, places that are nearby. So I wanted to have you on just to, you know, to kind of talk about that. Um, but before we do, before we get into the the, the nitty gritty, before we get into the depressing things. Um, <laughs> so as I mentioned, you're an in-residence fellow with SEPA's Democracy Fellowship Program, and you're focusing on the occupied territories of Ukraine you started your career as a journalist in Feodosia in Crimea. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about your background in journalism and how you got to be uh, where you are right now. Well, uh, first, Greg, thank you so much for having me here and uh, for raising the question of uh, Crimea, because I, I literally think that we have to talk more about Crimea and people should know definitely about the peninsula and why it is so important. Uh, you're quite right. My background is uh, in journalism because, uh, well, I was born in Crimea and um, when I was like 16, I guess, um, I was kind of interested in journalism and uh, I worked in the local newspaper in uh, Piadosia. And um, then I had my own uh, school newspaper, um, which was a lot of fun. But, you know, um, I kind of, I, I think that I, I've been curious from the moment when I was born because my mom would say that my favorite question was always why. So <laughs> yeah. this is uh, what brought me to journalism. And uh, I think that sometimes I'm happy that I've chosen this path. Sometimes I, I'm frustrated, you know, how yeah. the journalism, you're always in this uh, ambivalent position and you have to handle it. So, um, yeah, I started my career there and then I went to study to Kharkiv, uh, which is in the east of uh, Ukraine. Well, it's a little bit of why it is so, because if you're from this small town in uh, Crimea, uh, for your parents, it's actually very expensive to send you somewhere to the capital of Ukraine, to Kiev. So parents would always try to send you somewhere to Kharkiv, to Dnipro or Zaporizhia, somewhere where it is not very expensive as the life in the capital of Ukraine. So that is why I went to study uh, to the Kharkiv National University. And um, before it, I think that I I did a few fellowships, uh, transatlantic fellowships in uh, North Carolina, Wake Forest University. And then uh, when I studied in uh, Kharkiv, I was an exchange student in the University of Mississippi. So I don't know why it happened, but when I was like 16, kind of my life changed because I first went to to the United States and I could see the different world. And my parents would always say to me, you have to go there, you know, just, just go there, see the world, you know? And I'm very grateful to my parents that they did it always, you know? Uh, it's it's not very, um, so they're super democratical and they're like, do whatever you, you need to do, you know? So this is how it is. And then after, uh, well, I, I went to Kiev and I worked there for many, many years. Well, actually, the full-scale invasion, um, uh, during the full-scale invasion, when it started, I was in Kiev, and I didn't expect it to happen. So I was like, mm, I would be staying there, you know. But then in a week, I realized that I'm not as brave as I thought about myself, and uh, I fled the country. So then I was in Germany, and then I found this wonderful fellowship, democracy fellowship in uh, D.C., I'm very happy to be here and to inform about the temporarily occupied territories and to write about it and to basically proceed my work with the expanding some of the skills that I have. And I'm very grateful to this opportunity. Um, that's thank you for sharing that. That's a, it's sort of a roundabout story. I find it I, I, as a, a 
an American from New Jersey and New York, I find it very amusing that your parents were like, go to the United States, see the world, and you wound up in Mississippi. So <laughs> I, <laughs> how many people, I wonder, have spent significant time in Crimea and Mississippi? The list cannot be that that long. I don't know. Um, I think that's interesting. So, all right, let's start. Um, let's start off with Crimea. It's obviously it's a focal point in, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine because the invasion really began in 2014 with with the takeover of Crimea, um, and we'll we'll talk more about that later. Um, but before we get there, I want to talk about just the history of the place because it's it's fascinating for people that aren't map oriented. It, you know, Crimea is based it's it's a peninsula. It's sort of shaped like a hand almost, sort of jutting out. Um, from Ukraine proper into the Black Sea. And historically, it's been, you know, ruled by all kinds of different imperial powers. There was the Romans, the Byzantines, the Mongols, the Tatars, the, uh, you know, eventually the Russians, then the Soviets. So it's it's always been a place of, uh, of influence and lots of different cultures sort of crossing. So talk a little bit about, about the history of the place as, as, as you learned about it growing up there. Like what, what how do Crimeans see Crimea as place in history, I guess? Well, it's very interesting that you're asking this question because I tried to reflect on it, uh, like just like what what it what it is like to be from a place like Crimea and why it is it has always been under different civilizations and under different countries, you know. And I just think that Crimea is just simply very beautiful, and uh, it has different uh, cultures and uh, different uh, vibes and atmospheres from different uh, you know nations, and that is why it's so attractive to many civilizations. So you're quite right that uh, well, the reason me that Crimea was allegedly always Russian, you know, but before 2014, uh, Crimea was under Russian control for like a total of 168 years, if I'm not mistaken. So what is interesting is that uh, Russia is just one of several powers, as you have said, uh, that have aimed to dominate the peninsula. So Crimea was initially Greek land, uh, different civilizations then, uh, you know, settled down there uh, and coexisted uh, together. Uh, you're quite right. It's like uh, the Hanat of Crimea, generous colonies. Uh, right. Then the Hanat expanded and became for over 300 years, um, you know, a dominant power. As a, uh, and the Russian invaded Crimea then in 1783 because they wanted to control the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Then it was the Crimean War. Then it was the Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union. Then um, it was the Crimean Tatar deportation of two, uh, 1944. Then the peninsula, as you remember, was transferred back to Ukraine in 1954. It aimed to improve the peninsula's uh, situation with water and economy. Because uh, I have always remembered that during my childhood, we would have the um, water in the bath tube. Uh, because you just simply sometimes there are like these disruptions of water supply and you simply don't have it. So like for me, uh, being like a small kid, it was okay to see the whole uh, bathtub full of water because you just simply can't have it, you know? So it's like we would always have like very big bottles of water with water. So it's, I mean, this uh, situation with economy and uh, poor supply with water has always been there, I think. So, and then uh, I was born during the, well, uh, of course, Ukraine's control and uh, when it was the Autonomous Republic of Crimea, and it is the Autonomous Republic of Crimea, according to the uh, Ukrainian constitution, we uh, have the own constitution, prime minister and parliament. So it's the peninsula where you are uh, having your own everything, you know, 
So that is how it is. And that is why I think that different civilizations just wanted to own it because of the beauty and because of the different cultures. And from being somewhere from Crimea, I was exposed uh, exposed to different nations. Uh, there were a lot of Crimean Tatars, uh, Armenians, Georgians living together, Greeks. And uh, my best friends, of uh, my parents are actually of Greek origin. And they're like hanging out together all the time. So it's just, and you would hear a lot of different languages. Uh, so I think it's a very multinational spot with the very convenient uh, position. Yeah, we have the Black Sea and uh, it's it's just uh, different uh, different cultures and uh, different ethnicities. I would call it like that. Yeah, it looks it looks like a great place to, to be because of the cultures and also the, you know, you can tell by looking at it that it must be stunning to look at. Like most of the cities are right on the water and the Black Sea is obviously very beautiful. Um, wait, tell me a little bit about the Crimean War, because I tried to read a book about it one time and it didn't actually make any sense. And my only takeaway from it is that it, it Russia lost and it showed the world kind of that their Navy sucked. But is there a, what, how did it start? Like, what, how is it perceived there? Like, what's the deal with the Crimean War? Teach us about that. Uh, I mean, I'm not probably the best teacher, but you're quite right that it was the official cause of the war was, uh, it was like a dispute between uh, the Russian Tsar, Nicholas, uh, and the Ottoman Imperial over which empire would have authority over Orthodox Christian living in Ottoman territory. And uh, there was like the religion pretext of European powers. Uh, but since 1983 to February uh, 18. 56 between Russia and then like you know alliance of the Ottoman Empire, France, United Kingdom, and uh, you know that that that's it. But um, actually, I wouldn't be probably the right person to tell you more about the Crimean War. You have to talk with the historians. That's <laughs> fine. No, I'm, I'm I'm more curious about how it's taught there and what the perceptions is, which you answered. You know, so uh, we don't need to go into. The, believe me, we don't want to go into the nitty gritty of the Crimean War. We don't need. We don't need to do that today. Um, uh, it was many, many years ago. See, uh, uh, the unfortunate thing of Crimea is that we used to have so many wars. And uh, the the most uh, probably sad story of our lives is that right now we have this war. You know, yeah. this is something that is very close to us. But if we look back, then we would definitely see that there were always these wars. Everyone would want to occupy this land. To have this, uh, you know, uh, to have their culture exposed there, expanded there, which is kind of good because that is why Crimea is super multinational and has different uh, cultures. Because I would even send some pictures, you would see anything from the like Muslim culture, uh, churches, you know, uh, like Christian churches, Muslim culture, and everything coexists together, you know? So this is what makes this place very unique. But coming back to your question, yeah, that this was this Crimean War, and then uh, through different uh, types of, uh, then this uh, was, you know, like um, under one power, then under another power, then it was uh, given back to uh, Ukraine, and then uh, we always have this situation where where this land is kind of, you know, or occupied or retaken back control, you know, so it's it's like always like this. So that is why right now, unfortunately, we have a lot to talk about the current situation and current right. uh, war. Well, let's let's get to that then. So uh, Putin took over Crimea. I mean, basically, there was the 
the referendum, which was a complete sham. You've written about this. Um, it seems to be a thing where he wanted it and knew that it, he wasn't going to get it in any other way, that he had to like rig the system. This is Teddy Roosevelt um, to, to, to build the, uh, the Panama Canal. Um, Columbia, which owned Panama at that time, didn't want to do it. So um, they made it so that the Panamanians had a revolution and became their own country. And then the United States had to deal with Panama. So it's a, it's a, it's as an American, I look at it as, oh, he's doing the Teddy Roosevelt thing that they did in Panama in in Crimea. But, uh, you know, talk a little bit about that. Like, what was the referendum? How was it? Work? How, why do we know that it's wrong? And how did he kind of how did he accomplish it back in 2014? Well, uh, see, uh, during t 2014, it was the revolution of dignity. Uh, in, in many uh, cities of Ukraine, there were uh, the protests against the regime and against uh, everything that was going on that particular moment within the Ukrainian politics. And this particular moment, Putin decided to use this moment, you know, basically. Yeah. So what happened in February, March 2014, it was a military operation that was executed on land and, and the is at the Black Sea. So uh, you know that this referendum was held at the gunpoint um, on the 16th March of 2014. And uh, Russia just wanted to legitimize takeover of Crimea uh, when there were like a lot of uh, military, but they wouldn't say about this military at first. They would talk about this green people, green, uh, green, yeah, people or whatever. So yeah, the green men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it means that they occupied a lot of buildings, administrative buildings, and they were infused with those people, military, you know, and then they were basically denying it for many, many years. And then the, uh, well, uh, they they confirmed that there they was like their military or whoever it was, but it was the sham referendum because those who supported remaining within Ukraine uh, could not campaign freely. And uh, the ballot excluded the option for Crimea. Crimea to remain part of Ukraine as an autonomous republic. So this is the best, like, this is what we need to know about this sham referendum. Because if you are kind of uh, telling that it's a uh, democratical vote, then you probably will have a lot of international watchers and different organizations coming there and checking how the referendum takes place. But none of that happened there. And the Kremlin significantly inflated voter turnout but uh, so it, I think that they said that it was like 80, uh, 82% of yeah. voters had cast their ballots, but a member of Russia's presidential uh, secret society, Human Rights Council, reported then that turnout was likely to have totaled 30 to 50%. And uh, the, the whole uh, election and this referendum, it was fraught because uh, multiple voting uh, was reported. And, you know, when you are kind of, when you don't have this uh, opportunity to express your opinions freely and you you don't have uh, this particular uh, option to stay within ukraine in your ballot then uh, there is no sense to hold such types of uh, the referendum because it will be sham random you know so this is what happens during 2014 unfortunately you know i remember myself because it was uh, very interesting because that particular moment, I was in Budapest with my uh, friends because it was like a birthday party of one of my friends and it was like a planned trip. So we were like at the airport reading the news about Crimea and we were absolutely shocked because we were standing at the airport. People were just uh, fussing around. They were just going somewhere and we couldn't believe that it was happening in, you know, 21st century. That right. this feeling that you have your land and it's being 
occupied and it's being, uh, you know, the, uh, some shimmered random, some sham potent takes place there. And you just can't believe that it happens. And you look and the rest of the people and you see the other picture that everyone is kind of okay because they all, like all people live their previous lives. But you, like I understood that particular moment that my life and the life of my friends wouldn't be the same because we were, we are all from Crimea and uh, we didn't live there in the, on the peninsula. So we lived in Kiev already. But still, it, it felt like it was some abnormal picture that uh, your life is already uh, changing like to, I don't know, 180 degrees. And you understand that it won't be the same like for many, many years that would yeah. happen. No, that's awful to be at the airport. Yeah. And, and the, the feeling of helplessness, too. You yeah. Know, to be, yeah. yeah. This yeah. is the main feeling that like we, and that we couldn't control, and that right. we couldn't do anything. And you, you have a feeling that it might be a mistake and that something will happen right now that all of that will be changed. But yeah. no. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a huge inflection point. I did not know that 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 on the ballot that they didn't even give you the option to keep it, you know. I that that part I didn't I just assumed I guess that it was just yes or no or whatever, but so what's the deal like with the pat does, does does Crimea because it's semi-autonomous do they have their own passport or is it a Ukrainian passport and now everyone passport no, has to be no. It's the Ukrainian passport. It's okay. just the autonomous republic of uh, Crimea. It's just in the constitution. It said like this. So that is why we had our own parliament, government, and okay. uh, it feels like that's like a very separate land within Ukraine, like this. But yeah, the state language is uh, Ukrainian. So, uh, for instance, when people would say that you know everyone speaks Russian in Crimea, but like my generation is, uh, well, it is the example that no, we do speak Ukrainian. So uh, I'm like bilingual. That is why whenever I watch the movie, sometimes uh, I can't even uh, tell you uh, what language it was, whether it was Russian or Ukrainian, because I speak both languages. And uh, uh, like for me, it's it's absolutely, you know, I, I don't even distinguish, but this is probably my situation. But in Crimea, there are a lot of people who speak Ukrainian, and you could be speaking Ukrainian, and it's not a problem. So at school, I was taught Ukrainian and Russian. So yeah, okay. we did have this Russian language, Russian literature uh, classes, and we had Ukrainian language, Ukrainian literature classes. So it's like both, you know? No, no, that's interesting. So now here's the thing that I'm curious about, because there are, I mean, there are a lot of Russians in Crimea. And from what I understand, there's a, it, because it's so nice... There's a lot of like senior ex-KGB retirees go there, just like, you know, in the United States, everyone goes to Florida and, and then start to, you know, the, the Republicans are come down there. So if you if there were a referendum in Crimea now, mm -hmm. you know, how would it how would Crimea vote, do you think? Would they vote to to go back to Ukraine in the way that it was? Is that do you think that that's that's the sentiment, the popular sentiment? It's it's a very good question, but unfortunately, we don't know the answer right now. Because uh, the interesting part of it is that we have a approximate number of uh, Russians coming to the peninsula after the annexation. Mm. A lot of people created their families, you know, there. So it's like a complete mix there, and they violated the Ukrainian law because according to the Ukrainian law, you can cross the, uh, you can you can go to the peninsula through the three checkpoints that are on the Ukrainian territory. So they violated the law because they went through the Kerch Bridge. It's right. the other side of the peninsula. So that is why they basically violated the Ukrainian law, you know? And that is why that might be a legal uh, reason 
for uh, their deportation uh, when Ukraine regains control over the peninsula. Okay. But we talk about the referendum and how would people vote right now. Uh, I will tell you something. In the majority of cases, people in Crimea, they're slightly passive. What I mean? Uh, their uh, main um, income is uh, goes through the tourists. So right. for three, four months, they're earning money by, um, uh, you know, like by having some hotels, rooms for rent, and for like attracting tourists to come over to their uh, places. And that is why uh, people are very, um, you know, uh, they want this tourism season to be okay. Because for like three, four months, they work. And then for the rest of the year, they just leave on what they have burned during this three, four months. Right. And it's a very incredible situation because probably it's the situation of with the every more or less tourism uh, destination. So it means that people in the majority of cases think about how they will be earning money. And um, like th th that is why they are slightly passive. So if um, a country comes there and says that you will have your previous whatever experience with your tourists and everything will be okay, uh, the majority of people will say, okay, like they're just, they're, they're trying to be like, they would, when, uh, they would uh, reply that they are like, not for politics, they're just for peace and they just want to live uh, peacefully there, you know, mm -hmm. which doesn't make any sense because this is, that is why I think Russia used this the, this whole atmosphere and vibe of people who live there, and there was no power who could um, uh, you know repel them from this territory. That is why you know if uh, if Ukraine had uh, power to repel all the Russian soldiers from this territory, that would be of course uh, uh, the um, the option. But unfortunately, Ukraine didn't have the power to repel all the soldiers that were infused there, and they very quickly, you know. So that is why uh, if we could hold this type of election and the referendum, I don't know the answer. You know, I just know that in the majority of like people are slightly passive and I have found, you know, just a second, I have uh, found the census that was, that took place in 2001. Okay. Crimea's population was two, um, two and three million people with more than 60% identifying themselves as Russian, 24% as Ukrainian, and 12 and a half percent as Crimean Tatars. A lot of Greek, Armenians, Jerusalem live there. But then uh, from 2018 to 2011, the number of Crimean residents who saw Ukraine as their motherland rose from 32% to 71, according to the results uh, of a survey conducted by the Orzumkov Center. But we unfortunately don't have the legitimate polls right now. If uh, Russia holds any type of uh, both there, unfortunately, it's not very relevant because in the majority of cases, people are just intimidated. They're scared to uh, freely sure. express news, even if they want Ukraine to come back and to regain control. They will be just sitting quiet. This is the policy that people of uh, Crimea try to lead. They just try to sit quiet, not to express anything, because if you do, then you're subject to de um, to be detained and um, to spend your life in the prison, you know, which is, of course, not the best decision in your life. Yeah, no, it's in it's intimidating. Thank you for that, because that that does answer my question, e even though you don't have the, the, the poll numbers, you've explained very nicely sort of the the mentality of the people, which is completely understandable. And also, like, I think, you know, if, if the place has been controlled by so many different people over the time that it kind of 
must make sense on some level to be that way. Like, you know, it's the United States history is so is so new in comparison to to a place like Crimea where stuff's been happening for thousands of years and uh, everybody has to adjust accordingly. So, um, OK, this is a good time to take a, a short break. We'll be right back with Alina Bekentaba. So last week I came home from work and I'm thinking, what am I going to make for dinner? You know, I'm on cooking detail this week. I basically just cook the same five things over and over again. I make them really well, but it's the same five things. Everyone in my house is sick of them. And I open the door and what's waiting for me in the vestibule, but a package from HelloFresh. And this is like the greatest thing because I don't know if you're familiar with HelloFresh, but it has everything you need like right there. So all you have to do is open up the box and like start cooking. It's wonderful. Um, You know, I mean, when it comes to options for dinner, honestly, more is more. The HelloFresh menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-on items to choose from every week. You should totally try it. If you go to HelloFresh.com slash 50prevail and use code 50prevail, get 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Kickstart a fresh fall routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all the meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook up a tasty meal right at home. They do the hard part, and you get to take all the credit. Um, in my case, I got these these tacos, which they, the meat is so good that they have, and I put them with peppers and everything. And uh, they gave me cabbage, and I was going to make this cabbage, and I thought, I don't know if I like cabbage. I'm going to try this, but I, I followed the recipe exactly. And these <laughs> these tacos were so good that I ate like five of them. Like I gorged myself on these delicious HelloFresh tacos. Um, and now I learned how to cook them. I learned that you know cabbage is good. Who knew, right? Um, you know, if you ever wish that you can spend less time planning, shopping, cooking for the family, and more time with them, from easy time-saving breakfasts and family dinners to kid-approved lunches and snacks, HelloFresh has what it takes to keep everyone, including you, happy and satisfied. When you get HelloFresh, you know you're getting top-notch products since it travels from the farm to your door in less than seven days. And I can attest to this, the meat is like really good. Um, you know, because sometimes you go to the, the, the store in your town and you buy the chopped meat and it's a little bit sus, as the kids say. Uh, not here. This is like really good stuff, high quality stuff. And, uh, you know, you don't have to go to the sometimes I go to the supermarket and I buy things and then they wind up going bad because I don't know what, who's going to eat what. So this also eliminates that problem. Um, it's just a wonderful thing. And I, I highly recommend it. I'm so delighted that they're sponsoring the show. Um, I couldn't ask for a better sponsor. So uh, I, I encourage you to try it. It's really great. Um, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. HelloFresh. Delicious. It's really good. Try it. Trust me. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. 
but with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler. How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Lena Bekenova. Um, now let's talk about uh, the current situation there. Um, so uh, we already talked about uh, 2014. Um, you know, Russia basically takes control um, of the Crimea and the Western response is pretty tepid, I would say. What could the Western powers have done at the time that would have been more effective than just slapping some sanctions on? Or would nothing have worked because Putin's just crazy? You mean with annexation, right? With annexation? Yeah, with the annexation, the 2014 Crimea annexation. Yeah, so I w- I'm sometimes thinking about it. And unfortunately, I don't have even the good answer to that question. And I will reply in why, because we are looking at this situation right now. We are looking at our past and we think what would have been worked. But unfortunately, we don't know because we are talking about the past. When we were in that particular moment there, uh, I had always a feeling that there should be something right now, that the whole world will be against of Russia. There will be more sanctions. There will be more uh, particular actions that could uh, influence Russia's economy so that it couldn't proceed the way it was proceeding. But uh, with every every other year, I would understand that nothing actually works because they are adjusting to all these sanctions. They're making fun of them, of these sanctions, mm-hmm. and they leave their previous lives. What does it tell us about? It tells uh, it tells us about that Russia has a lot of money, unfortunately, and that is why we have to, um, like whenever uh, there is a policy and policy uh, and policies made in terms of uh, what we can do more for Crimea or Ukraine, we have to always keep it in mind. Russia has a lot of money and they can adjust to any type of uh, sanctions. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, impose those sanctions. Yes, like Europe, the United States uh, definitely have to do it, but it should be more particular actions and more sanctions, even though it's uh, I mean, it's, it's a plain answer. But unfortunately, there is, uh, I, I don't think that there is a magic tool that will help to kind of change Russia's strategy to occupy the lands. It will be like all together, you know, it will be like sanctions, uh, some particular actions with um, towards people who, um, you know, uh, take important decisions in Russia so that the whole society kind of 
uh, could change uh, their attitude to what is going on. Because right now, it's it's this policy of denial in the majority of cases. If mm-hmm. people can live their previous lives, they uh, like they will try to do it because they don't want any change, you know. So if they are allowed to live their previous lives, to have their, I don't know, like if, if these shops or if these brands don't come to their land, to their territory, it's okay. They will find the ways how to deliver them. I'm just, I mean, it's it's very simple, right? If we talk about the economy, about like strategic fields uh, of the economy that are being sanctioned, it's in, it's another question. So there should like to my uh, to my feeling it's it's just it's not enough because they uh, like all the steps uh, or strategies are kind of you know reactive not proactive so we don't think uh, that russia is adjusting to all of that and they are quickly adjusting to all of that okay. so that is why uh, i remember that after annexation of crimea there were a lot of memes you know, like uh, memes uh, created by, uh, I don't know, Russians on uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, that they would like make fun of those sanctions, telling that they can uh, handle it and they can definitely deliver all types of uh, uh, products or brands that they allegedly can't. You know, it's it's like a very simple example. But right now we are seeing that their like economy, their military economy, even adjusting to the whole uh, thing because they are delivering their uh, like... Um, tools uh, of the double uh, intention um, through different countries, through other countries, not right. through like directly, but so we see that they are adjusting. And that's the, I think that this is what we always uh, have to keep in mind, how to make this um, particular actions um, actually acute and uh, direct so that Russian economy couldn't adjust to that. So that's, that's it. And uh, I truly believe that probably something will change when people will understand what is going on and yeah. when they would want it all to stop. Because right now, to my, um, well, uh, as I see it, I think that a lot of people just, I mean, I'm okay if it doesn't touch me, you know, like right. they, yeah. they try to live their lives because we understand that it's, it's very hard to protest in Russia, blah, blah, blah. And there are a lot of like detentions, but still, if people won't um, won't have this will to change it, it will be proceeding, you know, it will be, uh, so Russia will keep on occupying one territory and then another one and then another one. This is because people let it happen. You know, it, it doesn't matter who, who is the governor. It's it also, you know, like in Ukraine, it's not possible. If, uh, if we don't like something, we would protest and we would be protesting as much as, you know, as we need and we, uh, we are able to do it, you know, because right. this is, in, that works and this is what unfortunately doesn't work in russia yeah that's good thank you for that thank you for the answer because uh yeah i think you know so we have to do something that really impacts the people more directly in russia the the people in charge and also the the people on the ground who are able to just turn a blind eye to the atrocities that are that are going on not far away from from the border um yeah. so putin is trying the same tricks now in donetsk and luhansk and and Kherson that he you know, pulled in Crimea, where he's trying to install these sort of puppet governments and 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 set up these sham referendums. Um, you wrote about this for SIPA. Uh, we're recording this. It's it's August twentieth. I'm going to run this um, in in early September, which I think mm-hmm. is when the elections are scheduled for. These sham elections are scheduled on September tenth. So, mm-hmm. why is he doing this? What 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 purpose does it serve? Because they're they're spending an awful lot of of effort and money and coordination basically to cheat on a test. So, you know, what's the purpose of it? 
Well, the purpose is simple. They want to legitimize this occupation because they um, held this uh, sham referendum a year ago. Right now, they are trying to show the whole world and the, their domestic audience is that these temporarily occupied territories have a very vibrant political life, that they are good and, you know, they are playing this game that everything is under the control. That's the favorite Russian game. Uh, it doesn't matter what the chaos you have on the territory, but you have to show that everything is under control so that the domestic audience accepts the whole reality. So they're just, uh, what they are trying to do, they are creating this parallel uh, reality with all these uh, sham uh, elections. They want to show that there are people, allegedly, who want to run uh, and who want to be the candidates to different uh, legitimate or uh, illegitimate, I mean, legitimate for Russians organs, but not legitimate for Ukraine. And they're trying to uh, show that all those people support uh, Russia, you know, and then they will use it uh, always as a product, saying that um, all those people, they uh, support Russia and the, the policy that it has, you know? So everything is done to kind of uh, legitimate, legitimize this occupation and legitimize all the um, processes that take place there. Because if we talk about, you know, the elections, it's one process, It's it, there are like multiple others, like Russification and passportization, because people are given a lot of uh, Russian passports and uh, they have to have it just to live there on this territory. So everything is done to kind of say that, you know, it's not the Ukrainians living there afterwards, it's the Russian citizens. So this is what they do. You know, they are occupying the land, close it from different sides, then um, kind of do their processes there with the Russification, all these sham elections, referendums. And then they are telling us it's not Ukrainians living there, you know? So this is what, what happens with all their strategies. And unfortunately, what I'm observing is that it took them around uh, like six, seven years to kind of, um, so after the annexation of Crimea, not all the people wanted to get their Russian passports and they would use their Ukrainian ones. And uh, for like in, in two, three years, I think uh, Russians became very strict. But before it, it was okay to have this, uh, to, to have the Ukrainian passport and to be with it. But then after it, they started to be more strict and with the temp with the newly occupied uh, territories of Ukraine, they are doing everything much faster, unfortunately. And that is why, it's, um, like I'm always saying, that it's it's important to liberate those lands as fast as possible because consequences will be there that we saw in Crimea in six seven years. But here it took them like one and a half, and they are doing it all. You know. Yeah, no that that all makes sense. It's basically, I mean, this is what Hitler did in the Sudetenland. You know, it it it's the uh, oh, these are the Germans that are living there. You know, this uh, we have to go defend the Germans that are living there. So, I mean, the the, the extent to which uh, Putin has been playing the Hitler playbook is uh, very very alarming. I've been talking about this for years now, but um, you know, I think it's 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 pretty obvious. So. Uh, but yeah, but part of that, I think you touched upon another, you know, important part, which is that he's doing it for his audience in Russia because it's propaganda. So he can tell his people, hey, you know, I'm not the bad guy. The Ukrainians are the bad guys. They're, you know, treating the Russians badly. We're just defending our people and all that bullshit, frankly. So um, but it works. You know, the propaganda works because what other you know, how else do people get their information there? I don't know. 
I mean, the government propaganda is obviously they're they're really, really good at, at spread, spreading lies. That's they've been doing it for for quite some time. Uh, the Russians have been doing it since at least what, you know, Ivan the Terrible in 1580 something. So should we do the same tactic in Kaliningrad? Should we just have a referendum there and be like, yeah, it's independent now. Let's welcome them into NATO. That's that's a good uh, point. <laughs> but the, the, the problem with the rest of the world is that we treat Russia as a um, as a country who is allegedly following or should follow uh, the rule of law, yes. but Russia doesn't do it. You know that is why the the rest of the world is trying to to show that regardless of any circumstances, the rest of the world will be following the law, the rule of law. You know, right. but Russia is not following. That's the the biggest difference. That is why we can't. I mean, we cannot occupy Kaliningrad. We cannot close this territory and be like, hey. Let's have a shame referendum here. Let's be, it's, it's whatever, it's the part of NATO right now. Because this is what the the whole world, the rest of the world is not doing. Because we are following the rule of law. And this is unfortunately that we are sometimes when taking some decisions and even like in policy making. Yeah, but I think it is, it's okay because we don't want to be as that world. That is our yeah. difference. We want to live in a world where the rule of law, law means everything, you know. While when you are in Crimea or in the temporarily occupied territories, like I'm telling you something, you are not really sure that if you enter this territory, you will get out. Just because there will be some case against you. Just because you allegedly said something. You know, this is what happens to a country that doesn't follow the rules law. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And thanks for bringing that up. Because the the, you know, we do treat Russia and Putin in particular as somebody who is a rational actor, adheres to treaties. I mean, you know, th there's this movement among the the, the Putin, uh, you know, boosters here in the United States. They try to uh, take the position that they're for peace and they're pacifists and they just want peace uh, between the countries. And why can't we negotiate? Because we just want peace and the war won't stop until there's negotiation. And first of all, duh, everyone wants peace. Second of all, uh, you can't negotiate with the guy because he doesn't he doesn't pay any attention to the treaties. You know, in, in 96, 94, 96, I can't remember the year, you, Ukraine had, I think, the third largest nuclear arsenal uh, in the world yeah. and gave it up. Uh, you know, and one of the, the conditions by which they gave up their nukes was, hey, don't invade us. Well, they, they invaded anyway. It didn't it didn't matter. Um, yeah. You know, he he's often thwarted and, and thumbed his nose at the rule of law. So the idea that he's going to sit down at some negotiating table and, and then follow what comes out of it is, is ridiculous based on his history. And not only that, if we stop the, the activities now, he's already made such inroads into Eastern Ukraine that probably it's, it's going to stay that way, which is what nobody wants. So it, any sort of negotiation with him now is a victory for him. So must be therefore avoided for the reasons you said, because he doesn't he doesn't follow the law. And they are lying a lot. You know, that's uh, also something that we are not prepared for the rest of the world. I mean, when you say something, you are you're meaning it, you know, you mean it. And mm -hmm. uh, with Russia, it's always contrary. So you have to be sure, you have to be prepared. Even if there are any type of negotiations, then they will tell something, but they won't follow it. So they lie a lot also. So that is why this is one of the strategies that um, the rest of the world can afford.
because we are different, you know? So yeah. that is why, uh, simply, I don't know, like, well, everyone wants to have a piece, especially like me, I want to have a piece on my territory, on the country where I'm born and the uh, citizen of which I am, you know? But right now, the, the whole situation, I just don't know how to, whether this like possible negotiations will be it or not. The only thing right now that will bring this peace is when uh, people from the armed forces of Ukraine will uh, um, they will occupy, liberate that territory that is occupied right now. So this is the only uh, option that we have, and the you know as for now, because even if there were any type of negotiations, Russia can tell one thing, but it doesn't matter that it doesn't mean that they will fulfill it. Right. So the reason of negotiations. Especially if uh, the the you know this territory is uh, occupied right now, so I think that negotiations may happen only when uh, the Ukrainian armed forces will liberate this land, and then there will be any type of some type of negotiations, you know. And um, this is what I'm always said that Irina, you have to be sure that every war is uh, um, is over with the negotiation. And I'm like, well, I know it, but right now, look at it. Like, what would we bring to our land, you know? Would we just froze uh, the whole, uh, uh, you know, the whole situation as it is right now? You know, so that is why it's 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 tricky. Yeah. So okay, let's st- stick with Putin here for a minute. I, I I've written a lot about this. I've talked to a lot of different people about him. What is his end game? Do you think? What's your take on him? Why is he doing this? Why doesn't he stop? Like, what what does he want to gain? What is the what is the calculus for him? Um, you know, what's your take? Any 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 thoughts you have on Putin? I'm curious to hear. Uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, people who are experts on Putin and his mentality. I can definitely tell you that. Um, I will just share some of the thoughts that I have. And I think that definitely he wants to uh, to have this. He has this imperialistic uh, uh, outlooks. He has this idea that he can have the Soviet Union as he had it before. And that he is the owner, governor of the superpower. This is what he has in his mind. But if we look at it, you know, uh, it's it's just the whole idea with the full-scale invasion. I mean, they did have these ideas that they could take uh, Kiev in three days or that they could occupy the whole of Ukraine, which is kind of nonsense, right? But this is what, what, what he thought would be a reality. But the problem with it is that uh, right now, with the one and a half years of the full-scale invasion, and when we see that Russian military and Russian soldiers are learning a lot from the Ukrainian soldiers, and they are adjusting to the uh, way of the to the new tactics, this is something that we have to be um, to be prepared for. That they didn't quit their ideas to occupy the whole of Ukraine. And uh, uh, well, when I talked with the, one of the governors in Kherson Oblast that was at first occupied and then liberated. So she told me the phrase uh, that, uh, like Elena, Russian propaganda works so well that people from Donetsk or Lugansk Oblast that were under occupation for nine years, then when the full-scale invasion started, they went somewhere to Kherson Oblast to fight for like Russia. And uh, they were sure that their enemies, not Ukrainians, but the countries of NATO, and that, that together with Ukrainians, they would go to so this is how they think. And to yeah. me, it's like a complete nightmare because I think that it's not possible that people truly believe in it. But this is what the Russian propaganda um, does, unfortunately. 
that a lot of people believe in uh, in uh, that uh, like uh, you know myth that it's uh, they are war with the NATO countries as they allegedly say it, which is 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 absolutely nonsense. They just invaded the other land. They came to the other territory of the other uh, country. They want to occupy it, but they say absolutely different things. So mm-hmm. it's like gaslighting, you know. So when uh, yes. there is an aggressor and the victim, and uh, the victim says that this, and then the aggressor says, no, you didn't mean this. You have said this, that, and that. And th- this is like a complete nightmare because um, this is what they're always doing. They're like blurring everything. You think that this is like this, but they are using their Russian propaganda for blurring everything how you think, how you might think. And they're blurring this critical thing, you know. So uh, that is why I don't know what is, uh, I mean, we, we all kind of know that his plan is this, but what is the end? I, I simply don't know. I wish I could say, you know, and people who say something like uh, there will be the collapse of Russia soon or something like this, this is our wishful thinking. This yeah. is what our psyche wants, wants to happen. But in reality, we see that their economy is uh, adjusting, their military is adjusting. So what are we talking about? Maybe we should talk more about our future steps if they don't stop. How is the Eastern plan? Is it ready or not? Because this is unfortunately the reality. We talk about things that we want to happen, but unfortunately the reality may be absolutely different. So I think we have to be prepared for the worst. And if something good happens, this is just our, uh, you know, successful bonus, I would say. Yeah, no, that's, I think you're right. I think thinking about it, assuming that he's never going to stop is is absolutely the way to, you know, to go into it. Um, and you, you, you know, you talked about the propaganda of the Russians, you know, in, in the Eastern provinces, there just being insane. I mean, we know what that's like in the United States. We have, you know, a third of the country believes that Trump law, you know, won the election and that this whole thing, their, their brains are just, they're just gone. So that, you know, we know, we know firsthand in the U S uh, you know, how propaganda works and how horrible it is. I mean, and this business of, of Putin is, you know, bitching and moaning about the NATO, NATO's the enemy and NATO is doing this. Look, if NATO was really interested in invading Russia, NATO would invade Russia now when its entire fucking army is in Ukraine and it has nothing, no way to defend itself. Uh, That's what NATO would do if they gave a rat's ass about Russia, which they don't. Um, And and this whole like nuclear deterrent thing, I don't know. Those weapons are from like 1946. I, I if the nuclear arsenal is as great as the rest of the Russian military, I don't think it's it's all that terrifying, uh, personally. Um, I do want to ask you about that, though, because uh, we did come out, um, some senators in the U.S. came out with this with this NATO resolution that if the Russians hit the nuclear plant in uh, Zaporizhia, am I saying it right? I can't pronounce it right. Zaporizhia? Zaporizhia yeah. nuclear power plant. But by the way, so Zaporizhia is the Ukrainian pronunciation. Okay. Zaporizhia, it's the uh, Russian one. So whenever I uh, like look at different texts, I'm seeing, okay, this is the Ukrainian transliteration. This is the Russian one. So the right way to say is Zaporizhia. Zaporizhia. Okay, that's what I have. I think that's what I have written down. That's good. Which is from your article. So I I try I try to do it now. And and my friend Zarina Zabriskie, who um you know is is in Ukraine reporting on the war, um has been there and has been like terrified that this something bad is going to happen there since really the, the 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 invasion began. Um you know so far so good. What's what's your take on that? Is the NATO resolution enough to keep him from you know doing bad things or i mean it's it's obviously ridiculous to blow up a nuclear plant so close to your own border but he's also insane so i don't know 
You know, uh, right now, I, 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 well, unfortunately, I'm on a depressive side because with the whole uh, full-scale invasion, I thought that it couldn't have happened, you know, but it, it did happen. So mm -hmm. that is why it was Kapolka Dam. You know, you, you wouldn't even imagine that it would have happened, but it happened. So that is why I'm not excluding the option that uh, this Abrasian nuclear power plant can be blown up by the Russian military because this is the um, territory that is uh, controlled by them, you know. So the only way we can be all in the whole world, uh, we, we, we could be safe if this territory is under Ukraine's control. And yeah. if there are like international observers, if they see what is going on there, uh, like, because we, we have this report so that this territory is a mine there. This is not, this is mine. You know, you, you, we, we keep on seeing it. So the only thing that we can be sure about is that when this territory is um, not controlled by the Russians right now, it's controlled. So we don't know what, what could happen, uh, what could happen there because uh, with the Kakhovka Dam, the same. So we didn't control this territory. So uh, that is why... I don't believe that it could have happened just because of the destruction and constant shelling. No, I mean, it, it, the, the construction was that it could uh, withdraw the uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear strike, you know? So I don't think that some constant shelling could uh, happen, could, could lead to whatever destruction, you know? So I think it's the deliberate destruction. It's the mm. deliberate blowing up. So the same with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, you know? I think that we just have to have, um, I, I don't think that the international organizations right now who have the access that they can influence something, that they can control something. I'm not really sure about that because even the international organization OSCE that were uh, in the bus uh, from like 2014 or 15, they would tell that they can't control a lot of things. You know, they cannot influence them because if you are uh, from the country and recommendations like this, and then you have Russian soldiers with the weapon, then it's it it's not correlated because, uh, well, always, uh, I think the, the more strong is the, that person with the weapon, with the weapon and uh, who is not respecting the international law. This is the reality. That is why we have to be prepared for a possible attack on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and that it can be blown up. And just if it is not, then it's the successful bonus, you know? Right. Because, yeah. But this is my uh, my takeaway because of being, I mean, I've, I've handled both situations. I've handled the annexation of Crimea and then all the consequences that were connected with them. Then the full-scale invasion. You know, for me, I'm not uh, on the optimistic side, unfortunately. So that is why we have to be prepared for the negative scenario. And then we're just lucky if it didn't happen. Yeah, I think that's in general in life. That's probably the best the, the best recourse on most things. Um, okay, I want to. I know we're we're coming up on an hour, and I don't want to keep you too long. Talk a little bit about the Kirsch Bridge because if you you look at this on a map, and it's really it it feels like it's it's got to be one of the longest bridges in the world, and it goes from Crimea into Russia, and it's basically the only way to get from Crimea into Russia. You know, not through Ukraine proper, or you know, uh, occupied or no. And it seems like maybe they're trying to blow it up. Maybe they're not. Like, what's going on with that bridge, and why is it important? I mean, uh, we all know why it is important because you just uh, you just have told that it's the only uh, possible way to get to Crimea from Russia. Uh, because, well, uh, it's not possible to go there through, uh, well, um, through Ukrainian territory. I mean, you can go there, but I mean, I see some of the reports that people do it, but though it's not very safe. So that is why. Um, well, the, the carriage bridge is the strategic 
uh, strategic breach for Russians. And uh, well, uh, we all know about the attacks, uh, the attacks of the and of the armed forces of Ukraine. And then we have the reports that resistance work there. You probably know that we have different types of resistance movement working on the peninsula and in other temporarily occupied territories. There is a peaceful uh, yellow ribbon. They just uh, place yellow ribbon uh, in the places uh, in, in different places uh, and it means that the armed forces of Ukraine and that Ukraine will regain control or well, they just write some uh, inscriptions like armed forces of, of Ukraine we are waiting for you or Crimea is Ukraine or Melitopol is Ukraine or any other and then we have Atesh that their aim is more to attack all the collaborators and Russian forces so, and um, I mean, I'm just uh, checking out their uh, like Telegram channel all the time and they're like writing not only about the movement of the Russian military and that they're like watching them, you know, and it's it's a part of also the, um, you know, it's it's the part of the information war, unfortunately, because okay. from both sides, it's, um, it's a lot of uh, reports, messages that have to um, like inspire people, right? But uh, well, as we know, there, there were several attacks on the carriage bridge and uh, well, it's, it's a strategic bridge for Russians. But if you ask me, I would tell you it's not a safe place. I mean, the peninsula overall is not a safe place anymore. And uh, people who live there, they would tell me that their tourism season is unfortunately not very successful this year. Uh, I mean, a person who would have uh, a lot of uh, tourists at her place, uh, she said to me that only three families rested at her place this summer, which is nothing. So she didn't earn any money, unfortunately, but this is the price that Crimean people are paying right now with the full-scale invasion of Russia, you know? And overall, it's not safe because of the drone attacks, because of the um, anti-missile defense system that allegedly works uh, in Crimea. So uh, it's um, the whole situation is very tricky. We don't know what actually happens there, but I talk with people, they say that it's not as quiet as it used to be. So it's loud there. Sometimes you would just hear a lot of explosions. Sometimes you see drone attacks. And sometimes the situation with the carriage bridge happens. So people who have relatives there, we are all, I mean, we, of course, uh, are worrying about them, you know, because we, we, we don't know what will happen. But overall, um, that's the, you know, that's the Ukrainian territory and Ukraine has the right to regain control over it. That is yeah. why we, we cannot predict what will happen, but uh, definitely it's not safe there right now. Unfortunately, we will be observing more and more of uh, attacks and uh, no one is safe there too as well as in Ukraine right now in yeah. on the mainland of Ukraine you know because uh, there is this saying that some places are allegedly more safe in Ukraine on the mainland of Ukraine but then uh, with the you know, for instance Chernihiv attack you know where a lot of people died and injured uh, we understand that at war on the western part of in the western part of Ukraine no one is safe there so the same situation is uh, unfortunately will be happening with uh, Crimea. No one will be safe there. And uh, this is the price that people uh, will have to pay because of the full-scale invasion by Russia, because of uh, someone decided to occupy and seize another country, you know, and uh, decided that he has this power to decide for other people. This is what we are all facing. Yeah. Now, you wrote, um, you've written a piece about the collaborator problem in Crimea, um, which is maybe a problem now and will be a problem eventually when it is liberated. So what do you mean by that? How should it be resolved? 
Well, uh, thank you for asking it, but like overall, there is a strategy. So the Ukrainian authorities are working on the strategy right now uh, that is uh, towards uh, Crimea. Uh, because uh, for nine years, you know, that before the full-scale invasion, there was a thought that Crimea may be liberated uh, with the democratic means, because this is what was told on the very high levels, you know, because we all would say that, you know, Ukraine doesn't have power to liberate this territory, and we don't have a power to, um, you know, kind of uh, repel or to reply to the, uh, like, very big army, but after the full-scale invasion, and this is our... Um, existence uh, war we all under existential right we all understand you know we are just forced so that is why we would be doing it so that is why um right now there is this thought that uh when the time comes and when we have the necessary weapons there will be the military probably way of uh, re resolving this situation mm, the first strategy of the occupation of crimea was um, adopted in march 2021 and then uh, in April of this year, it was uh, updated. But like overall, if we talk about collaborators, so those people who were um, working with Russian forces, Russian authorities, and uh, they will be prosecuted. But they, so there is a law. So and it will be, um, I think it will be solved out when uh, we liberate this territory, when Ukraine will liberate this territory, because right now it's, it's more or less... Um, for, for instance, middle and lower ranking civil servants whose actions had serious consequences will be held accountable and prosecuted. But those whose actions uh, didn't have serious consequences will no longer be able to work in the public service because there is like a special um, law right now and it, it, uh, it, it is related to anything that you might like, to teachers, to business, um, to like uh, people who collaborated with, uh, like uh, who worked in this uh, occupation administration. So there will be the answer to, there will be a particular story and the particular, uh, there is a law and uh, it uh, like, it can reply any question. So right now it's, it's more or less if the consequence, if, uh, if um, like working somewhere had very serious consequences, then this person will be prosecuted. Meaning that if the person was working and um, persecuting, I don't know, if he worked or if she worked as a judge, you know, and uh, uh, she, uh, like, there were a lot of, uh, you know, like, court decisions uh, that Ukrainians would be sitting, like, in prisons or whatever. So it it's, like, multiple situations. But there is a discussion about, like, teachers because uh, they were imposing the standards of the Russian Federation, which is kind of persecuted by the Ukrainian law. But should we or should we be tough on them? Or because if this person used to be a teacher before the annexation, then after the annexation, then probably there is a way that this person, if his, uh, his actions didn't have very serious consequences, could proceed working as a teacher. The same with doctors. So it's like a very range. I don't think that Ukraine will be like, I mean, the, the difference uh, of Russia and Ukraine is that Ukraine follows the rule of law. And right. uh, Ukraine doesn't want to prosecute all the Crimean residents who stayed on the peninsula and were the victims of this occupation, you know. But definitely those people who did something bad and whose um, actions led to very serious consequences, they will be persecuted, you know. But that's that's also the life and this, the uh, decisions that this particular person took, you know. So if, um, if he or she had another option to leave the territory or to... Um, to be the part of the occupation administration, then um, that's the the part of the 
courts and uh, judges to to decide this question afterwards. But I think that right now, for the time being, the main thing is that Ukraine has a strategy. Ukraine uh, will be following the rule of law. And the main thing, uh, like whenever I'm talking to someone from Crimea, I'm trying to reassure that those people who just were under the occupation and who are the victims and who didn't do anything bad, they will be okay, you know, because people are intimidated. People are already scared, you know. They've been living under occupation for nine years. And right now they have a perspective to be detained or persecuted. You know, it's not a very nice uh, continuation of your life because at first you're like under occupation, then you're like have to deal with this. So we are just trying to whenever like people who have this information, who are working with this information, if I can reassure and calm down people, I will do it. Yeah. Thank you for uh, calling attention to that because it's it's an interesting interesting in a bad way but it's a consequence of of the occupations and the liberations and all that stuff is you know how people behave um and probably most of them behave the way they do to survive um and uh you know what what the fallout will be when when the regime change happens or the regime change reverts back to the way that it should be so um okay i've got one more question for you um now you've already mentioned that you're sort of pessimistic which i under, which is understandable um anybody that, that i talk to from ukraine is pessimistic by the way uh lately um so uh but i want you to, to put on your optimism glasses for a moment so what's mm-hmm. the best possible thing that can happen in crimea now like in, in in the wake of the war how would this end in the way that's the the, the best way uh for the people of crimea um, I would just add one thing. I think I'm on a depressive uh, mode just because we have this mania or depressive mode. So if you're in mania, you're like thinking, you're having a lot of wishful thinking and then you have to deal with a lot of consequences. So being mm-hmm. in on the depressive mode helps you to kind of observe and be prepared for the negative scenario, which doesn't mean that you're depressive all the time. But um, so the best uh, way and the best scenario that could, hap- uh, that could happen with the Crimeans right now is that uh, when Ukraine will be able to have enough of weapon systems to liberate their land and to come closer to uh, Crimea, uh, then I think the Russian military will be uh, leaving this territory. A lot of Russian collaborators will be leaving this territory through the carriage bridge, and uh, they will be trying to save their Russian fleet there. So, and for people who didn't do anything bad, they will be just uh, hopefully, if uh, this like optimistic scenario will happen. They will be just uh, observers of the whole situation. They will see how it will, all will be happening. As well as nine years ago, they were just observers looking how the Russian soldiers came over to their territory and infused the whole territory. You know, so that's it. Uh, that will be the possible successful scenario and optimistic scenario. But uh, we'll see how it happens. You know. Well, hopefully it'll happen before this podcast episode even comes out. That's that's my hope. So this was great. Thank you so much for for joining me today and and uh, educating me about all the all the nuts and bolts of of what's happening there. Um, where can people find you? You're on Twitter still. Yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm not very like it's, it's very interesting because we're not very active Ukrainians on Twitter. But sometimes, yeah, I do post uh, some of my work there on LinkedIn. This is where I'm more or less. Yeah. Okay, so uh, follow, everybody can follow you there. Uh, Alina Baketova, thank you so much for joining me today. This is great. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me. And thank you so much for raising this important topic about Crimea. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. 
Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. M. S. W. Media.